You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Dr. Newtopia. Newtopia is an artist and futurist. We'll be right back with Newtopia, but first let's talk about quitting. I feel like I'm quitting a bunch of things in my life right now. I'm not exactly quitting my job, but my job isn't going to continue. They, my contract won't be renewed and that'll be that. And I've really enjoyed working there. I'll, I'll be sad to leave and happy to go on and do other things. And I've quit my relationship with my partner and that feels right. It feels like the right time and with a wonderful person, but it's the right time. I feel like rather than New Year's resolutions where you're like, I'm going to drop 20 pounds or I feel like I'm just starting a different life. <laughs> I'm quitting, quitting a bunch of things and going to be doing a different life. And quitting always feels like it's something akin to failure too, like they're cousins, but it's, I don't feel like these are things that are failures. I feel like these are things that are, are successful. I've had a successful time at Pima and really loved my job and loved working with my students. And I had a wonderful relationship that wasn't always easy, but with a lovely person and good times. And it was something I learned a lot and grew a lot. And I have a belief about relationships that they're for growth for both people. And if you're growing and learning with that person, then it's good and healthy. And if you're not, then it's stagnant or maybe detrimental if you're in a relationship where you're not learning and growing in some way with that person. And it can be hard growing and it can be easy, fun growing, but that it should be that And that might not be true. It's just what I feel about relationships, that they're for learning and growing and that we're here on this planet not to be perfect and do things well, but to learn and grow and become better people, become more wise. And I I have this fantasy that someday I am going to be the kind of person that is calm and quiet and wise that's a fantasy that probably won't happen. I'm loud and boisterous and opinionated, but I have this fantasy that if I really do life right, I will get to some place where I'm quiet and wise and settled and sort of good with myself in the universe. I don't know that that'll happen. It's a fantasy. It's, it's my like goal in life is to get to that place and to still be engaged with the world and still excited about things, but not so full of, I guess, vim and vigor. (laughs) I have a lot of opinions and I have a lot of, was talking to a good friend last night and saying, I am a loud, opinionated, demanding woman. I'm, I'm, I'm a force to reckon with in this world. And that bothers some people. To some people, I'm a horrible, mean, plowing through life kind of person. There are some people who believe that, and there are some people who believe that I'm kind and gentle and sweet, and both those things are true. Both those things are true. I am loud and and opinionated and, and pushy sometimes and demanding and have standards that I want the world to adhere to, and I don't mind talking about it, and I know there are people who find that offensive, 
And I'm okay with that. I feel like I'm also someone who's giving and sweet and gentle. And I think that's good too. That, that those are not mutually exclusive things. That it's not hypocritical to be opinionated and a force to reckon with in the world as well as being someone who is sweet and kind and considerate. I'm also rude. Like those are, I can be both. It's not one or the other. That's what I was thinking about. But I have this fantasy that someday I'll be at ease in some kind of wise old woman way. I don't know why I'm thinking about that this week, but I think it's because it is a new year and I am quitting a bunch of things. I'm changing. I'm I'm shifting into a new mode and, and a different life. And next year will look very different from this year. I think there are years where you quit things. And I think 2018 will be a year where I build things. Last year was a year where I let things go and quit things. And 2018 will be a year where I build things and make something new. And I don't know what it's going to be. And it's exciting. And how that all relates to depression is my fear is that I will go nowhere and do nothing and stay in bed and curl up when I quit all these things. My hope is that I go on and do my next great adventure. But I do have a little fear of just getting in bed and not getting out again because I don't have to. In the fall, I don't have to go to work. Come fall, I won't have to go to work. And I, I believe wholeheartedly that I will take care of myself and I will set things up so that I don't get in bed and curl up and never go anywhere. And Newtopia had a beautiful post that I, I will share a little bit of. It was just about cleaning your house and, and like doing that as a way of fighting depression. And I'm like, yes, that sounds great. I, I cleaned my refrigerator. I was inspired and I, I defrosted my freezer, which I've been meaning to do, and cleaned out all, every shelf of my refrigerator. It was great. And threw out old stuff. I'm quitting my refrigerator along with everything else. So on that note, I hope you all have something wonderful to quit and something wonderful to start and that you begin your new year building something or quitting something, whatever mode you're in this year. Today we have with us in the studio, Dr. Newtopia. Newtopia is an artist and futurist. Hello, Newtopia. Welcome to the Depression Session. Thank you. That's oh, great to have you here. What's new with you? What, what are you up to in your life other than cleaning your house? <laughs> cleaning my house and having a party, a house blessing party, which you are certainly welcome to come to. Wonderful. Yeah, I bought a new house and this is a way to, to invite my friends over so that I can change. Like you said, this is the time of change. And for this new house, I would like it to be more of a community mm. uh, center because there's not much community out there. And I feel that because we've lost so much public space, that people need to start opening up their houses and creating community that way in a non-commercial way. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot because... I started having a breakfast club and having people over to my house. I'm going to have it today, this morning, actually. And I get in some modes where I'm hibernating and I don't want anybody over. I always do my brunch, but I get into modes where I don't, I don't have people over and I just go out to do things. And then I have modes where I have people in. And there is something so lovely about having people in your home. It's a little harder somehow, I think. Is it harder for you? What do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, to open up my house and to have people come in and there's a vulnerability to it and not really knowing who uh, might come 
because I'm open to strangers coming as well. People I know on Facebook that I've never met before who live in Tucson, you know, so it's a real, we're, I think we're in the midst of a social experiment yeah. with uh, Facebook as being our mode to build community Yeah, and how people are knowing about events has, is now totally like Facebook. It's true. And then I've, I've, I've quit Facebook a little bit, not entirely, but I have stopped looking at the feed. I don't want to hear everything about everything. I just, I got kind of worn out on it uh, even more than a year ago, even before our new president that people have a lot of opinions about, you know, but even before that, I just felt like, ah, because there's a rabbit hole you can go down with the news feed on Facebook. Your home page is fine. Like people send you personal messages and post things to you personally, and they send you an actual message that you want to read. And I write them back and I use it like glorified email. And I've stopped engaging with the broader Facebook, but it means I don't always know what events are happening. I don't always know when someone's mom died, someone's mom died who I'm close with. And I just didn't even know. And I thought, whoa, I wish I'd checked more. But I don't want to get sucked into the other stuff. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I understand that because it's a trance. And it works sort of like you're a stream. Mm-hmm. And you can just get into that trance and spend hours trying to look at your friends, look at your past. And really, perhaps, the purpose of Facebook or the Internet is to evolve our culture. Hmm. And I think that that's what we're seeing now, that this is a tool for our evolutionary process. It's becoming like the central nervous system of the planet, what some people have called digital Gaia. A collective consciousness where people are actually communicating over the air. That's it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, Newtopia, tell us the story of your depression. It started when I was uh, went to school, and I couldn't read. They took tests and found out I was dyslexic. Now, this was in the 60s, early 60s, and dyslexia was just coming out as a problem. So I was one of the first people that had that diagnosis. So they put me in the dumb reading group. There were about four other people in that group. Now my heart wanted to be in the accelerated group and I longed to be there. You know, this was painful to be with the people who could not read and we didn't get that much attention. They, we had idiot things to read that they made us read. The accelerated group was studying about bees and ants and science And we were stuck with simple stories. So they really dumbed us down. You know, we were the dumb people, so they dumbed us down even more and didn't give us what we needed. And it destroyed my self-esteem, you know. And I was pegged with that label all the way up elementary school. So I just became very depressed about it. You know, I couldn't be in the group I wanted to be in. I couldn't have the friends I wanted to be in. I was pretty ugly, too. So I was both dumb and ugly. And I couldn't go to the parties I wanted to go to. You know, that was something. And then it carried on in, in junior high school. 
And so I couldn't get boyfriends because dumb people couldn't even get boyfriends. So it was just a real, um, it was an institutional problem. Then the depression started getting worse when I started understanding about the nuclear arms race. I was devastated. I went to Scotland as an exchange student. I met a man named Nick near the Isle of Skye, and he was a deep sea diver. And we had a brief affair. And during that affair, it was like a weekend affair, he told me about George Orwell and doublespeak and how the manipulation of politics happens and what the nuclear arms race meant. All these weapons of mass destruction pointed between the United States and the Soviet Union. I never learned that in school. That was not really part of what they taught us in school. So then I was confronted with the whole lies the educational system teaches us or fails to teach us. I went back from that trip abroad, went back to Greensboro, North Carolina, my home state, and I started talking about the nuclear arms race. Well, people didn't want to hear it. And they started labeling me as crazy. You know, why are you bringing up this topic? Nobody cares about that. So what? Most of our money, our tax money goes into nuclear weapons. Why do we care? We're not going to have a nuclear war. We're perfectly safe. It was just out of people's consciousness. And I was trying to bring it into their consciousness. As a truth teller, people don't like you. Then I started blaming my parents. Like, why did you bring me into this world? This is totally depressing, totally negative. Why would anyone have a kid knowing this reality that the world could blow up in a nuclear holocaust? So I confronted them and they were devastated. They didn't know what to do. I had become a radical. So eventually they called the police after I tried to destroy a painting. There was a portrait that my uh, family had painted of me, and I was in like a riding outfit. I used to be a horseback rider, and it was very bourgeois. And I decided, you know, that's the class that is causing this nuclear arms race who can't confront the truth, and I'm going to step on that portrait and get rid of it. Well, you know, that's one thing that revolutionaries do, is they destroy the artwork of the dominant class. I didn't know that at the time, but that's what happens. You destroy the images in order for a new image to arise. So I wanted that new image of myself to arise. I was going through a, a major identity crisis. So the police came. I was committed to a mental hospital called Mandela in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And since I was committed, I was there by the state. The state had committed me. And when the state commits you, I had to get go in front of a judge in order to get out. So this is a serious thing. If you get committed to a mental institution by a state, then I just couldn't walk out. I was a prisoner. And I considered myself a political prisoner because my consciousness had become our political system is a problem and it needs to have a dose of truth in order to correct itself. And as a truth teller, I was being persecuted. And the mental institution, I learned a lot. You know, you learn a lot by going into an institution. And I saw the way the psychiatrist tried to talk me out of being an idealist. 
like I, I was talking to this one psychologist in the hospital, and he said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I would like the world to feed itself. We have enough food for everyone to have food, but there is a distribution problem and there is a organizational problem. And he told me, well, I shouldn't be thinking about that stuff. And what was important to my parents was that I calmed down enough to get a job. I needed to fit into the system and get a job and work a nine-to-five job like everybody else and stop worrying about the arms race, stop worrying about the distribution of wealth, and conform to the system. That was their goal. And they would shock me, shock, you know, electric shock treatment. They would do stuff like that in order to get me into the system. And at one point, I had a woman that was another patient, and we were walking from the dining hall, and I said something. I I don't even know what I said, but it ticked her off. She started yelling in the hallways that I was a witch. And she yelled, yeah, accusing me of being a witch. So then the guards come, and I'm going, no, you need to take her. She's the one that's screaming, not me. But anyway, since I was accused of being a witch, they put me into the isolation room. And two men come in, strip me naked, and put on a little white hospital gown. A nurse comes in with a hypodermic needle and says, this is isolation room treatment. We're going to give you this. It was Haldol. It was a drug for um, schizophrenia. And they're going to shoot me up with this, and then I will have to stay into the isolation room until they release me. I said to the nurse, I do not need isolation room treatment. I want you to call the psychiatrist and tell him I am perfectly calm, collected, I am not a witch, and I do not need that, quote, medicine. I don't want you to inject me with anything. Well, she wouldn't listen to reason. They would not call the doctor. The two men held me down and shot me with that drug. Well, then they left. And I'm in the isolation room, can't speak to anybody. I start having a reaction to the drug. And I could not speak. I went blind. One side of my mouth was in paralysis. And so I was just drooling. I mean, they had made me into an idiot. And finally, after several hours, the nurse came to, I guess, check up on me. And, you know, I'm in this horrible state. And she opens the door. She really doesn't care. I have to crawl out of that room, make my way down the hall to the nurse's station, which I could barely even speak. And they look at me and they go, oh, she's having a reaction to the drug. They better call the psychiatrist. So then the psychiatrist comes, they put me on a table, and then they have their needle and they give me the antidote. So at that point, I'm really questioning, well, what is fascism? Who do I trust? I certainly am not trusting this mental health system. And the whole thing is really crazy. I'm not the crazy one. They're the crazy one. So it was enlightening because I saw how the psychiatric system works and how it manipulates us and how it will punish you if you do not conform to their vision of reality. And at that time, it was us versus them in a nuclear arms race. Total insanity. Societal insanity. So that's enough reason to be depressed. Now, with Trump talking about having a bigger 
button than the North Korean president, this whole problem is coming back of the use of nuclear weapons. So no wonder so many people are depressed. We cannot be happy when we have a government like this. And I suggest to everyone, find alternative ways to deal with your depression because don't trust the mental health system unless you really have a doctor and they have a diagnosis for you. Just don't let them treat you for depression with their drugs. Thanks so much for your story, Nutopia. Powerful. So I'm just shocked to hear that you were institutionalized. I mean, I've known you for a long time, and I just think that's crazy. How long were you in there? I think I was in there two or three weeks, and how I got out was I had to go in front of a judge. After a week of being in there, I went in front of the judge, and I had a public defender lawyer with me. And the judge looked at the lawyer, and he said, do you think she deserves to be in the hospital? And my lawyer said, yes, he thought I was crazy. So after that, I said, I'm not going to have a lawyer with me. Because I had to, after two weeks, I had to go back for another judgment. This one was very serious because this one, if he had said, no, we're going to commit you, I would have been committed perhaps for life in a very negative place in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. So the second time I went up in front of the judge, he had brought my parents in there. So my parents were in this room where the judge was, and then I was brought in from the mental hospital. This time, I was going to represent myself. I had on dark glasses, because I just didn't, I don't know why I put on my sunglasses. And I went in there, and the judge started asking me questions. He said, for one thing, he said, your parents are over here, and look at everything they've given you. You have these wonderful parents And I just nod, you know, like a heroin addict. I'm just nodding, you know. And then he goes, you know, you live in the best country in the world. And I do the same thing. I just nod up and down because I knew that he was goading me. Mm -hmm. And if I had said, nope, I don't believe this is the best country in the world. And I don't like that it is an empire. And I don't believe in these nuclear weapons. Then I would have been committed for life. So that's how I dealt with it. I just did the heroin nod, just nodding out, and that's how I got out. Wow, that's it. it's 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 crazy. I can't imagine having that experience, but there are a lot of other things I really relate to in your story. One is the dyslexia. I was born in 1971, and when I was in elementary school, so it was years later, I was in elementary school. And I was put in club car because I couldn't read and I couldn't do math. And club car was for the dumb kids. And it was clear it was for the dumb kids. And there wasn't a diagnosis. I didn't get diagnosed with dyslexia. I never got diagnosed with dyslexia. I just sort of figured things out. I used to come home crying because I had to miss recess. Everybody got to go to recess, but the dumb kids had to stay, you know, and we were in a special group that was taken into a different room for different exercises and stuff because we couldn't read those books. I didn't read a book all the way through on my own until, what was it, sixth grade. But I still remember it was Harriet the Spy, and the first line was interesting. And that was the problem. I mean, that was part of the problem. The first line was never interesting in anything they ever gave us to read because we were in the dumb kids. So it was boring, dumb stuff. And I was a smart kid who had a reading problem and a math problem. (laughs) But you feel like the dumb kid. I mean, I really, really relate to that. 
I was so traumatized by what happened to me in school that I refused to learn how to read after that. I didn't even want to. I didn't go into a library for years and years and years. I mean, now I have a doctorate. I got over it. <laughs> you got over it, yeah. exactly. Because I have a doctorate in education. Because I wanted to know why I had been traumatized by education. Why they did that to me as a kid. Yeah. You know, because this is this is not the way to treat children. No. You know, just lowering the se- their self-esteem. And here, I mean, you're just a brilliant woman. Obviously, you didn't deserve to be in that situation. And neither did I. And I walked around a long time thinking I was a dumb kid. But when I got to middle school, I started doing really well. Because we got from basic math to higher math. And I was great at higher math. And it was great. I was a mathlete. And I did learn to read. And I became good at reading. And then I was in excelled literature classes. Because I could do literature. I just couldn't get words right. And I forget I'm dyslexic. I forget. I read on a computer. Because a computer will put, you know, the letters are in the right direction. The D never comes out as a B. When I handwrite, half the time it does. You know? And that's what's so wonderful about the age that we live in now, because the technology is much better yes. for dyslexics. Yes, yes, yes. It will do your spelling correction. Yes. It will do the grammar correction. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it makes it so dyslexics can be writers yes. and producers and everything else that we should be. It also shows that uh, both you and I had to go through that, and it changes your perspective. It does. It makes you compassionate. Yeah. And then the second thing I want to talk about is being institutionalized for having belief systems. And I'm sure there were some other components to it, but it sounds very unfair and very brutal. Just a gentle soul like you being put into an institution and treated like like there's something horribly wrong with you. Well, people don't know how to deal with rebellious youth. And there's nowhere for these rebellious youth to really express themselves except maybe on the streets. So the institutions do not support this. They want to protect the status quo. So it's very hard to be a transformationist. But that's what we need more than anything else. And I'm channeling my energy now into yoga, which has given me a lot of insights how to deal with this energy how to focus it in a direction that perhaps the general public will at some point want to adopt. It needs to adopt it now as far as not (laughs) using our money uh, to go for nuclear weapons, a new generation of them, and to go into building an educational system that is superb, that tells the truth. I was watching Al Gore. He did a 24-hour reality show It was streaming on the internet. I watched about 17 hours of it. And he went to different parts of the world to show what's happening with climate change and what people are doing about it. There was this one story that he talked about that is happening in Australia. It's an elementary school, and it's a climate-focused elementary school. So they're teaching children about their future in a way that deals with science. They're learning physics. They're learning about solar energy. These are the kind of schools that we need. The U of A, University of Arizona, should turn into a solar-focused school in order to deal with climate change. And all of the resources should go into transforming first the university and then the larger metropolis that we live in. 
into a solar-powered, sustainable town. It's totally doable, too. I remember hearing if Phoenix just had solar panels on the businesses, they could power the whole state. Mm. Just on top, the rooftop of the businesses. We have the technology. Why is this not a bill going through the state Senate right now? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think this causes societal depression. You know, when we see that we need to do that, almost anyone can see that Arizona should be the solar capital of the United States, and it's not happening. Yeah. You know, that's enough to be depressed about. On that note, thank you so much for being on the Depression Session, Utopia. Thank you. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.